This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Chris Wallace. Chris is the host of Fox News Sunday, but he started his career in journalism back in 1964 when he was an intern, still in high school, for Walter Cronkite during the 1964 Republican National Convention. From there, he went to college and was eventually the NBC White House correspondent from 1982 to 1989. He has interviewed some of the most prominent newsmakers of our time to include Mother Teresa, Ronald Reagan, President Obama, President Clinton, President Trump, and he continues to host Fox News Sunday every week on the Fox News Channel. He is the author of the Countdown series, his latest Countdown Bin Laden. I encourage every American to go out and read this book. Just like with his last year's Countdown 1945 about the lead up to dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But Countdown Bin Laden is so relevant, particularly because of the recent events in Afghanistan. And also because to me, it seems like it is one of the last times that we were truly united as a country. And one of the last times we can point to where our elected leaders, uh, our military establishment worked together to accomplish a goal. And uh, everyone should go out and read this, particularly high school students, junior high school students, college students, people who weren't born on 9-11. Fascinating read. Uh, It's uplifting and it is very emotional. So I had a great time talking to Chris Wallace. We only had just over 30 minutes. So I got in as much as I possibly could. As you'll hear, I could have talked to him for hours. So enjoy the podcast. And now without further ado, Chris Wallace. Thank you so much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate it. I know how valuable your time is, and uh, it, it means so much to me that you would take the time to to come on here and do this. Uh, well, thank you for your interest in the book. Oh, absolutely. And I love the first one, too, Countdown 1945, which I have right here as well. Um, and what stood out to me about both of these, and I have character right here as well, for those that uh, haven't read Character Profiles and Presidential Courage right there. Fascinating. Absolutely incredible. Uh, but both the Countdown books... I was surprised at how emotional they were. They're emotional reads, uh, especially to someone who is a, a student of history and for someone who has uh, spent time in uniform, that uh, they're emotional as you read these things. And I love the way that you structure the countdown, which is obviously something that, uh, that Hollywood does, that uh, authors of thrillers do. But doing that with historical fiction, uh, it, it opens it to a whole nother audience. And that's why these are are so important because they're so readable, especially for this next generation that has so many digital distractions. It's so important for them to read these novels. So, well, listen, you uh, keep you. talking. I don't, I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> You're saying everything I would. Uh, thank you so much, Jack, and I'm oh. delighted to be on your podcast. The, you know, this is going to sound very presumptuous, but I think that that too often history is written wrong because it's written from the vantage point. Well, we know what happened, and now let's discuss how it happened or why it happened. But the fact is that as these figures were living this history, they didn't know what was going to happen. They were filled with doubts. They were filled with with concerns and problems that they had to overcome. And so the whole idea of the Countdown series, and I've now written two, 1945 uh, and Countdown Bin Laden, is to take a big event and, and start with where the, the, the run-up to the event happens in the case of 1945, 
it was Harry Truman on April 12th, 1945, becoming president and learning for the first time about uh, the existence of the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb and then 116 days from then until uh, he decides to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. Similarly with Countdown bin Laden, it begins on August 27th of 2010 when uh, three case officers come in to see CIA Director Leon Panetta and tell him about a lead they have that might, and I repeat, just might, uh, give them uh, an idea of where Osama bin Laden is uh, through all of the intelligence gathering in the CIA, through all of the decision-making in the White House, and then on to the raid itself. And at every step along the way, the, the negatives, the doubts about whether he's even there, the risk that will be taken, whether it's a suicide mission, you know, we it, it's the, the biggest compliment I got is somebody who said, I know how this story ends, Countdown bin Laden, but I was on the edge of my seat for the last hundred pages because I wanted to see what happened next. So, so that's the, the whole point is to be a history thriller. Oh, and it works. It's the uh, you go from months to days to weeks to minutes as it's a rush to the end, and it, it's just fascinating. And those two things that you pointed out about both of these books, uh, for me anyway, are the most uh, fascinating parts. In that you go behind the scenes of these decisions and feel. The, the emotional, in some cases, turmoil that these leaders have to go through when they're making these decisions. In the case of 1945, obviously, a decision that's going to change the world going forward for the rest of time. Uh, and then the risks involved in the bin Laden raid. So, uh, and who's counseling for, who's counseling against, weighing all those, the politics. It's, there's just so much behind the scenes that is just incredible. Um, but before I get to some of the specifics in this, and I'm going to got my eye on the clock here, uh, for a few minutes, I want to talk about your, uh, your, your past that got you here. In 1964, you were an assistant to Walter Cronkite at the Republican National Convention. I mean, were you still in high school at this point, or were you in your early college years? I, I was going to say assistant is grossly inflated. <laughs> I, I was 16 years old. I was between my junior and senior years in high school, and I was a gopher for for. Walter Cronkite, gopher meaning go for coffee, go for pencils. I was a summer intern uh, at the Republican convention, the Barry Goldwater convention and uh, uh, just outside the Cow Palace, just outside San Francisco. And that was really where I had my first uh, exposure to journalism and to news events and to news making figures. And I remember thinking at the time, I can't believe people get paid to do this exciting stuff. And, and you know, I wasn't sure for a while I, whether I was going to be in news or not, but that's that's really where the, the bug bit. Okay. And did you make that decision to go full in when you were at Harvard? Is that when you decided or was it at, was it after that? Um, well, you've done your homework. No, as a matter of fact, I, I was lucky enough. I went to Harvard. I graduated in 1969 and I was actually about to start law school. I was going to go to Yale Law School it just coincidentally, I would have been in Hillary Clinton's class, oh, wow. so I might have been president of the United States at that time. <laughs> but uh, I, I decided that at the last minute, I just didn't want to go to school anymore. And so I looked around for jobs, I, and I applied and got a job as a reporter for the Boston Globe up in Boston. I've been spent four years in Cambridge, uh, and that's where it started. That's I mean, that's amazing. I love uh, that that path through the '70s, but of course, the formative years for me were the '80s. That's that's uh, that's when I grew up, and that's when I first became uh, aware of you uh, when you're working for for NBC uh, as the White House correspondent. 
And uh, for someone who grew up in, in my generation, that's such a pivotal point in United States history uh, with the United States and USSR, with the Iran-Contra, with everything going on there. And you had a front row seat to, to all of that. And you really got to essentially, it seems like anyway, come into your own during that, during that time and really establish yourself as, uh, as one of the predominant journalists of our time. And uh, what was that like to be in that front row seat as the White House correspondent for NBC News during that period in the 80s? I mean, you got to interview Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan. You got to, uh, to push President Reagan on Iran-Contra before it was even called that. Um, and uh, it, what was that like to, to, to have a front row seat to all of that? Well, it was terrific. I went, as you say, six years, the, the chief White House correspondent for NBC covering Ronald Reagan in the White House. And um, it was a wonderful forced education because one day you would be doing U.S.-Soviet relations at the height of the Cold War with Reagan and Gorbachev. The next day you might be doing uh, something going on in the Middle East. The next day, the budget or, or Star Wars or something else. And so over the course of six years, you learned a lot about a lot of things. You went all over the world. I went to all four of the Reagan-Gorbachev summits. I went with Reagan to China in 1984, the, this lifelong cold warrior in uh, Tiananmen Square with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, it, it was a wonderful forced education. And the funny thing is, I've, I've been in the business literally, I can't believe it, a half a century. Uh, I started in 69 and now we're in 2021. Uh, but but those days, those six years covering Reagan and the White House are still so vivid. And, and I can remember so much of that in great detail. Uh, so it's incredible. I hope one day you, you take all this and, and put it all into a into a book with lessons learned and and advice to future journalists and future generations. Um, at, at what point did you interview Mother Teresa? Was that uh, at some point during that that time? No, it was it was just before that I was uh, before I went to the White House. Uh, in 1979, I was still working at NBC, but I was working for a magazine show called Primetime. And uh, Mother Teresa had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so in December of 1979, uh, I, I traveled to Calcutta, India, and spent a week with her watching the, the extraordinary work she did uh, in Calcutta. And, 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 you know, providing aid and comfort and love and grace to people who didn't have much of any of those things. And that clearly was one of the highlights of my life. I, I you know, whether you were religious or not, she just operated on a different spiritual plane than anybody I've met before or since. Is that the one interview that stands out as the most uplifting and inspiring of your, your time in journalism? Maybe uplifting and, and inspiring. I'm not sure it's the most memorable. No. <laughs> I mean, it, certainly is, it would be in the top 10, but, you know, I can remember getting, and you seem to know so much about my career, getting chewed out by Bill Clinton for 20 minutes in 2006. That was pretty memorable, too. <laughs> uh, not particularly uplifting or inspiring. And, you know, a lot of experiences with a lot of politicians over the year, up to and including Donald Trump. Right. Was the, uh, were, the, were the Trump interviews and the, uh, the Putin interviews, would those be your most contentious uh, interviews of your career, do you think? Uh, Clinton was certainly the most okay. uh, contentious. And, 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 you know, and this goes to something which, um, you know, I get, I get criticized a lot because I like to play it square. And so therefore some people on the right will say, oh, he's a liberal. And, and the answer is, I think if you look at my interviews over the years, I've 
been an equal opportunity pain in the neck, <laughs> uh, whether it's to Republican conservative presidents or liberal Democratic presidents. In the case of Clinton, it was in 2006, he was out of office, uh, but he was running the Clinton Global Initiative. And I, I was able, and it wasn't easy since I was at Fox by that point to, to get an interview with him. And, and the agreement was we'd spend half of it talking about his project, the Clinton Global Initiative, and a half of it talking about other things. And at that point, a documentary had just come out called the uh, the run-up to 9-11 and, and was quite critical of of Clinton and what he had done and failed to do in terms of bin Laden. And I ended up asking him at one point that this is the question, because I got a lot of emails from people, you know, here's what you should ask Clinton when you when you get him. And I said, the question I got most is, why didn't you do more to put bin Laden and Al-Qaeda out of business when you were president? And all I can say to people, I'm, it, I, I'm trying to describe it doesn't do it justice. Just go to YouTube and, and type in Chris Wallace and Bill Clinton Last time I checked was, was several years ago, and it had 10 million views, and it's worth watching. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to watch that uh, after this for sure. Uh, and if anybody, that, that what I respect most about you is that you are that equal opportunity interviewer. And uh, for anyone who questions that on the right, I would point to some of the last few weeks on Fox News Sunday, uh, April or August 22nd and 29th, when you're uh, talking to Secretary of State Blinken, when you're uh, talking to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, you don't let them off the hook. You are not giving them softball questions at all. And, uh, and you're also holding their feet to the fire, uh, in, in a couple instances. Uh, do you ever get, get, uh, upset or does it get irritating that politicians or bureaucrats don't answer questions directly? Uh, and in some cases simply refuse to answer even with a follow-up and a third follow-up. Uh, and then, you know, you're on the clock cause you have an hour on Fox news Sunday and you have another guest coming up. Uh, do you ever, does that, how irritating does that get? Or is that just something you become used to, uh, kind of playing in that space? Yeah. I, I mean, look, are you frustrated about it? Uh, sure. But if I got upset, I couldn't do my job because a lot of people do that. And, you know, it's part of a challenge and sometimes you're able to get them off the talking points and to get them reacting and thinking and talking in real time. And that's enormously satisfying. And sometimes you aren't. And then I fall back on something that my father, Mike Wallace, used to say, which is sometimes the questions are more interesting than the answers. And I think if you ask a direct question a couple of times and a guy refuses to answer it, the audience gets it, that he's he's purposely ducking the question. Oh, yes. And uh, those particular instances are, are fascinating, particularly to those who, who served in Afghanistan or have been following this for the last 20 years, which should be most Americans. But uh, but what you do and what uh, what journalists do is... Uh, they provide us, the citizenry, with the the data, with the information to make the best decisions possible when we step into that voting booth. And uh, you've had the opportunity from 1964 onward, really, uh, to be involved in that, particularly in the last uh, five, six, seven, eight years when you moderated these, these different debates. Um, and my question about those different debates that you moderated, do you ever get nervous? Because you never look nervous. Uh, and you have the eyes of the world on you in that position. Uh, do you ever think about people being critical of the questions or uh, just how do you never look nervous? Do you, are you nervous or no? Well, then I must be a good actor because, <laughs> you know, look, I, 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 as somebody said, it's not your, my first rodeo. I've done a lot of stuff. And, and, you know, I often think watching a baseball game and it's three, you know, a three, two count in the bottom of the ninth. The bases are loaded and there are two outs and a guy's up and you think, 
God, how can he stand the pressure? But the answer is you don't come to that situation without having built up to a, a lot of time. So, you know, one doing starting in local news and doing a mayoral debate and then a gubernatorial debate and a Senate debate, and then you're now you're a presidential. I will say though, and I had done some primary debates where, on Fox with just Republicans, but to do a general election debate, and the first one I did was the third debate between Trump and Clinton in 2016. Uh, I, I was nervous, not uh, somewhat right before, but especially in the days and weeks building up. There were times when I would just get a wave of anxiety to, because one is so darn important. I mean, one of these two people on the stage is going to be the next president of the United States. And, you know, you want to do justice. You want to give them an opportunity to have a fair debate. You want to ask equally tough questions of both sides. You want to stay as as invisible as possible. My idea of the perfect debate moderator is somebody says, that was a great debate. By the way, was there a moderator there? That to me is you're doing your job. It's not about you. But but you know, there are there are times when you I would just think, I don't know that I can handle this. 80 million people watching, but but you uh you know, you rise to the occasion. I'll tell you one quick story. So I was just about to do the 2016 debate and the the, the debate com commission, the presidential debate commission, the two commissioners were talking to the crowd and telling them to be quiet. I was just off stage in the wings. And I literally, just before I'm about to come out, I looked up, I don't think I've ever done this before. And I said, dear Lord, if you just get me through the next 90 minutes, I promise I will never ask you for anything ever again. <laughs> well, I did the debate, the debate went fine. Actually, I think it went really well. And I come off the stage and I'm just walking past the place where I have made my little prayer. And I stopped and I went up and I said, dear Lord, I know what I said, but could I have another debate for <laughs> years? I, I kind of wish that uh, the dear Lord had not listened to that because, of course, the 2020 debate was a different matter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, that was uh, I did not envy you your position in uh, in that one. That's for sure. Uh, and uh, before I get to the book here, which I'm going to jump into in one second, uh, having seen the evolution of, of media, social media over the years, from television to uh, to a six o'clock news hour that everyone would watch, to uh, a 24-hour news cycle, first with really CNN and then Fox, and uh, and then of course the rise of social media, where there are no barriers to uh, anyone who wants to comment on something uh, that actually allows certain sides to to, to weaponize. Uh, the media to a certain extent or news to a certain extent. Um, do you think things have become more contentious specifically because of these new technologies um, that are out there that were first meant to connect and now seem are being used to divide? That's a really good question, Jack. And I absolutely, uh, I'm going to take a slightly different spin and answering it like a politician, <laughs> not answering a question on Fox News Sunday, but you know, I am out in public some, and a lot of people will come up to me and say, gee, I love that you're so fair. I love that you treat both sides the same. And while I like being praised as much as the next person, I actually get kind of sad about that because when I started in journalism in, at the Boston Globe in 1969, being fair was what kept you from being fired. It was kind of a lowest common denominator. It wasn't what got you praised. What got you praised was good reporting, good writing, TV, good broadcasting, but being fair was just assumed. And frankly, now uh, it isn't. I, I think so many reporters following up on this kind of polarization in the media uh, feel that it, it, it's better for their careers to take a side. 
that wasn't the way I was brought up in the news business. It's not how I practice the news business now. I think anybody, and you know, and I'm glad you said what you said. I, I hope it's true. You know, I, I call BS on everybody. And if, you know, if I think that, that the Democrats need to answer some tough questions, that's I'll ask them. And when Republicans come on, I ask, I ask them as well. Um, you know, I'm not pushing an agenda or pulling my punches. That's that's really it. And that's what I've noticed over my lifetime as well, is that there used to be the news you used to trust, you used to turn on that news and you used to have trust with that anchor, trust with that network. And uh, now there are fewer and fewer of those trusted agents out there, uh, of which you are one of the few, uh, I would say, that uh, Americans on both sides of the aisle, uh, citizens, politicians, uh, look to. But, and that's why Fox News Sunday and you have been so successful. Um, but so thank you for, for doing that. I didn't want to miss my opportunity to, to, to thank you for doing that for the country. It's a, uh, it's a responsibility and there's, there's not one that's really more important, especially today. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. And, uh, so I'm going to switch gears, uh, a, a little bit here and then jump right into the book. Uh, but for journalists who are just starting out, when you talk to a new journalist who's just coming on, is there advice that you give them? And is that similar to say a high school student who asks you for advice or what to read? And what do you pass along to that, that new journalist or to that high school student or that college student that's just stepping out into the workforce when you get, uh, get asked about uh, advice? Well, it's a little different depending on whether it's a high school student or a college student or, or a new journalist. I mean, one of the things that I say to, to journalists um, I'm not a big fan, and I, I know this gets me in some trouble, of, of journalism schools, because I think that you can pick up a lot of the techniques from, from jobs. You know, you, you learn it as you go. I, one of the, you know, my feeling is that the key is when you, a microphone gets put in your hand or, a, a, you know, a keyboard at your fingers, that you have something to say. And so I think getting a good education uh, in you know, the liberal arts uh, in, in government and economics and literature. And, uh, you know, if, if you can learn a language or about a specific country so that you have some value added conceivably in getting a job, that's more important than techniques. And, you know, when people ask me about my dad and uh, what he taught, you know, what he taught me, it was it was much more about that than it was about you know, leaning your shoulder in as you do a stand-up, it was it was being educated and being informed and reading a lot and thinking a lot and writing a lot and practicing, you know, the the art of 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 thinking and expressing those thoughts. Uh, much more important than any little technical track. Well, I'm so glad you said that because that's what I pass along as well. Is that being able to 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 think critically about things, think logically about things, and then having a foundation built from the study of history so that you can make informed decisions going forward as a citizenry, and hopefully incorporating wisdom not just from your life but from other people's lives and the pages of history. So I always point people and encourage people to get into those books and really before they retweet something or before they uh, make a comment on something to really understand the foundation before they do that. Because it's so easy now to just make a snap decision and we're encouraged to do it by these social media platforms uh, when really we should take a breath and get into the pages of these books. But exactly. speaking of pages of books, uh, where, where were you on 9-11? Um, that really starts, kicks I, off. I was story. working in, in Washington for ABC and someone like a lot of people, I hadn't got, quite gotten to work yet, called me up and said, turn on your TV. And by that point, the first 
plane had already hit. I saw the second plane hit and I uh, raced into work. And as I was going into work, suddenly, and I was in Washington, I could see this huge, ugly plume of black smoke in the southwest horizon. And that was the third plane hitting the Pentagon. Um, so, you know, and there was this sense of how, how big is this going to be? How bad is it going to be? When is it going to stop? Um, and I immediately tried, I wasn't at that point, I was working for a primetime magazine. I didn't, wasn't covering the white house or have a specific beat. So you're trying to find some story to, to get a piece of, piece of the, of what's happening. And I ended up talking my way, uh, there, there was a, immediately they started a, a combat air patrol over Washington, D.C. to make sure that if there were any planes that came in, that they would, could shoot them down. And I ended up getting myself on a jet fighter with the uh, Air National Guard um, over the, the city and, and with the camera in the, in the, the back seat of a, of a, of a jet fighter, um, you know, shooting uh, the pictures of, of how they were patrolling the ground and never forget looking at, at the city, this, this great city of, of Washington that had always seemed to me so powerful and, and omnip, you know, omnipotent. And, and suddenly it seemed terribly vulnerable and very much at, at the whim of our enemies. So that, that was a very scary time and uh, an interesting story that I my first story that I covered as part of 9-11. That's incredible. I, I didn't know that you got in the back of a, <laughs> a backseat ride and got up there on that day. That's, in, that's incredible. And when you saw that black plume of smoke, uh, did you know it was the Pentagon? Did you suspect that it was no, related? No, I didn't know what it was. Well, I thought it was related. I didn't know what it was. Uh, and by the time I got to ABC, um, it, you know, I found out it, it was the Pentagon. I, I, I want to correct you on one thing. Uh, it, I didn't get into the jet fighter the first day I got into it, I think two, three days later. It's still pretty close. That's uh, yeah, that's incredible, amazing. And uh, in writing Countdown Bin Laden, what was the the most surprising element of the hunt that you were not previously aware of? Because obviously you've been involved in the story from from the initial days. Um, what was the most surprising element of the hunt that you that you didn't know beforehand? Well, let me say quickly that that when I wrote Countdown 1945, and this goes a little bit to the to the tension between being a reporter, and I'm not even gonna say I'm a historian, but a person who writes history books. Um, you know, I was so fascinated in the Truman story, and but frustrated that, yes, I had uh, diaries and letters and memoirs, but I couldn't talk to the key figures. And I so wanted to ask uh, Truman or, or, or Oppenheimer at Los Alamos or Paul Tibbetts on the Enola Gay, what were you thinking and what was happening? And tell me some little tidbit. And so when I decided to do a second book, I thought, and, and I came up with the idea of, of Countdown Bin Laden, which was similar in the sense that it had a distinct beginning and, and then a buildup to this, this uh, you know, climax. Uh, one of the things that attracted me is that all the key players were still alive and I had access to them. And so I was able to speak to them and ask them these questions. So the results, so this gets out of the answer to your question, is in spending hours talking to Secretary of State Clinton or Defense Secretary Gates or Leon Panetta at the CIA or William McRaven uh, at uh, the Joint Special Operations Commander, two of the SEALs, that honestly there were 
hundreds of surprises. And anybody who reads Countdown Bin Laden, I think, will find that there are surprises and insights, little anecdotes, big reveals on almost every page. If I were going to pick just two, I think one would be that that Obama is in the uh, Situation Room with all of his top advisors on April 28th of 2011, uh, Thursday afternoon, and he's going over with each of them you know, what do they think is the likelihood that bin Laden is there and someone says it's 40%, someone says it's 75%. And finally, after he's heard all of their advice and their assessments, he says, you know what? And he dismisses the percentages. It's 50-50. He's either there or he's not. So after all of these months, eight months of intelligence gathering and the very best that the CIA and our various other spy agencies can do, the, the best information they had was it was 50-50 that bin Laden was even there. And then the second thing is talking to the SEALs, um, including Rob O'Neill, the man who actually killed bin Laden, I, I said, how dangerous did you think this mission was? And he said, one-way ticket. And I said, excuse me? And he said, suicide mission. He said, I, I, you know, I thought we would get there, but when we got there, that bin Laden would have the compound booby-trapped and the whole place would blow up as soon as we set foot there. And then if, if that didn't happen, then as we were walking into the main house and they thought bin Laden would be on the top floor, the third floor, that there will be Al-Qaeda bodyguards there tossing hand grenades down or finding some other way to take us out. He said, I thought if bin Laden was there, we could get him, but I didn't think we were coming home. And that was one of surprise to me and only increase my admiration for the mission that these SEALs pulled off. That's right. And I knew uh, many of the guys on that mission, and uh, they they did think that. And um, yeah, it's just a, my hat's off to those guys and everybody involved in this. But the 50-50 uh, the decision, when you're describing Obama making that decision, and then later at night, uh, giving that approval or coming to the decision of making giving, giving the approval to go uh, and having then President uh, Vice President Biden uh, caution against it, have his defense secretary caution against it, having that specter of Desert One and Operation Eagle Claw still hanging over the room, even though, ironically, the changes made after Operation Eagle Claw in 1980 directly led to changes that, uh, not guaranteed, but led to the success of this particular mission. So all of that incorporated into these decisions was just fascinating. Uh, talking about Maya, the CIA analyst, uh, and her steadfast resolve that he was there also fascinating. Um, uh, some of those little tidbits, like the bottle of wine with Leon Panetta in Monterey, like those those little things that are that are in there. So I, I think this is so important that uh, that all Americans read this book, particularly this year uh, when we seem so divided, uh, very contentious election cycle. Obviously, um, that this may be the last time that most of us remember us being united as a country, uh, Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, I want to say something, if I if I may, uh, Jack, about the. The current events, you know, I had timed the book to come out on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It had never occurred to me that when the book came out that the same twisted gang that was running Afghanistan on September 11th of 2001 would be back in charge there on September 11th of 2021, the Taliban, of course. Uh, I, you know, and, and obviously the book wasn't written with that in mind. I didn't anticipate that. But I, I, two thoughts about that. One is, I think, you know, some people feel bad, given the way our longest war ended, feel bad about our involvement. Was it worth something? And I think that the countdown bin Laden 
makes it clear that in fact, it was worth doing because what we pulled off in, in, on May 1st of 2011 was really the reason we went there, which was one, to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice, to decapitate Al-Qaeda and to protect the homeland. There was not an attack from Afghanistan on the US homeland for those 20 years. Can't say what's gonna happen now, but for those 20 years. And the other point I guess I'd make is, you know, a lot of people agree or disagree with the idea of pulling out of Afghanistan, the policy decision, but I think almost everybody agrees the execution of the withdrawal was not handled well. And, you know, to me, if that's a case study, what's happened in the last month of the intel and political and military communities not getting their act together, then Countdown bin Laden to me is a case study of when it's done just perfectly, when the the intel community just never stops and keeps trying to dig up more information when you have a very careful, very rational, very meticulous decision-making process in the White House. And then when you have a, a really a first-rate team led by Bill McRaven, the head of Special Operations Command and military, all working together. When you, know, when you get the, the intel, political, and military communities all in concert, no turf battles, no ego, uh, there's nothing we can't do. Oh, that's in, exactly at the end of the book. There's uh, some quotes from Robert Gates and from Leon Panetta where they say something similar in that uh, most people look at our government and see the dysfunction and they point to this as being a time when it worked. Uh, another fascinating point. I'm going to let you go here. I know we're, we're coming up on the time, uh, but the decision to brief Congress and uh, President Obama not wanting that to happen, Leon Panetta kind of pushing the envelope a little bit and doing a little bit of that and just how all that that worked, that, that part really stood out to me. And then Leon Panetta saying uh, when he was counseling on the mission approval, he said, if I asked the average citizen, if you knew what I knew, what would you do? I thought that was that was incredible. And uh, I had some passages I wanted to read. I'm not going to read all of them, um, but I encourage everybody to go out and read this book, get this book, gift it to people in junior high and high school in college, because uh, it's such an important book, especially right now. But there's a few passages here. Uh, one by- Well, read, go ahead. I, you know what? Go ahead and read one of your favorites if you want I'll, or two. I'll pick one of them here. This is- uh, Okay. Uh, and this one is so. This one from the TF-160 commander, a letter from his dad, who was a helicopter pilot killed in Vietnam, uh, passing along these lessons. I'm gonna. I, I won't read JT, it. I'm, uh, John Thompson. That's it. That's it. And it's yeah. uh, it's such an emotional piece. So I probably won't read it because I'll probably get too emotional reading it. But everyone should read that. So much wisdom in that passage. And uh, this one near the end. There's the Leon Panetta one, the Robert Gates one that I that I talked about. But this one from Hillary Clinton really really stood out to me. And she said. The SEALs took the time to take the women and children from the house. They wouldn't be injured by shrapnel. There wouldn't be other damage done to the compound that could have injured or killed them. When I thought about that, I was so touched that American warriors took the time to put themselves in continuing danger to save the lives of America's enemies. And honestly, I thought that action by the SEALs spoke volumes about America's values. And that really stood out to me because there are sometimes very few things that differentiate us from our enemy, but maintaining that moral high ground is, that is the one that always differentiates America. Of course, we stumble at times, but that is what we have to maintain uh, in, in all of our endeavors. But uh, so that, that one really stood out to me right there. So thank you for, for including that, uh, all those in the end. Thank you for writing this book and uh, thank you for what you do each and every week on Fox News Sunday. Jack, I'm not, I'm not going to step on those lines. You ended this interview so much better than I could have. 
thank you for your interest in the book. Thank all of you for, for watching and uh, happy to be part of this. Oh, thank you so much. I'll see you on Fox News Sunday. Today's gear highlight segment is brought to you by 10,000. Now, 10,000 is an athletic apparel company. They make hands down the best training workout shorts that I've ever worn. And I've worn quite a few over my time, both before the military, in the military, and today. I've been wearing their seven-inch tactical short, which is these ones right here, and their interval shorts that I'm wearing right now. But uh, these things are incredible. Uh, and I've been putting on the pack, heading up into the mountain. I've been running. I've been doing throwing the kettlebells around. And uh, as I continue on to get back in shape here, this is my short of choice. I love it so much that I'm going to get all the other stuff that they have out there as well. You can find them 10,000.cc online and also Instagram 10,000.cc there as well. But I'm going to looking forward to trying out their shirts and all the rest of the stuff they have going on there. And I wanted to read their brand ethos because it's, uh, uh, it's very close to what I think about each and every day. And uh, here it is. It says, at the heart of 10,000 is a stoic dedication to continuous improvement every day faster, every day stronger, every day better than yesterday. And hashtag better than yesterday is their hashtag on Instagram, which I absolutely love because that's always the goal to do it better than we did yesterday, uh, to learn from what we did yesterday and do it better going forward, turn those lessons into wisdom. Uh, and that's what I try to do with the kids as well is pass some of that along to them. We don't believe in overnight success, miracle drugs, cure-alls, quick fixes, or shortcuts. We believe in works in progress. We believe in the value of our failures. We believe in dusting off and getting back up. We believe in grit, tenacity, and grinding. Yes, absolutely love that. Uh, these shorts, I just want to make sure I get this right. Uh, ultralight ripstop fabric, toughest nails waistband, Permanent anti-odor treatment, no-bounce pocket, medium compression, anti-chafe liner, side slits, and four-way stretch for maximum range of motion. Yeah. What all that means is that these are awesome shorts. 10,000 makes gear specific to other types of training, from running to Olympic lifting to boxing. You can also find a short for all the ways you train. Pick up the short that is best for your training and then personalize it with custom liner and inseam options. So awesome. Definitely check them out online. Uh, they have free shipping and free returns and a lifetime guarantee. And I'm going to read this call to action because you can get 15% off your purchase if you remember this. So write it down. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code DANGERCLOSE15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Once again, that is DANGERCLOSE15 to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter Danger Close 15. Awesome. So I just got back from a recent two-week trip to Alaska where I got to go off the grid for a little bit and returned home to this awesome gift from Mac Cutting Boards. And uh, Mac Cutting Boards is run by a retired firefighter out in California. And they make amazing... Just check out their website, mattcuttingboards.com, American flag cutting boards, custom cutting boards, and uh, just amazing stuff. But check this one out here. This is so cool. They did this custom one and surprised me with it. And look at that. Bam. Got the cross tomahawks in here. Uh, we have some coffee beans over there. And I got some red, white, and blue stars. Got some shell casings. Nice. And uh, ooh, what's that over there? Defender. 
Nice. Maybe it's a series. Uh, yeah, it could be either one. I'm not quite sure, but uh, it's either a, a series Land Rover or a Defender. Um, and what else is in here? The Trident. So, I mean, incredible. So thoughtful. Uh, yeah. Can't thank Matt Cutting Boards enough. This is so cool. It's so nice. I don't want to cut anything on it. So this might just be uh, turned into something that's decorative, but uh, all their stuff you can really use and uh, have two or three cutting boards by them uh, now. And uh, awesome. So thank you guys so much. Sincerely appreciate it. And of course you need a nice blade if you're going to have a nice cutting board. And uh, this one right here, Cutaway Knives. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite right, but you can go to Cutaway, C-U-D-A-W-A-Y, I believe, uh, .com and Cutaway on Instagram. And this one they made for Birch Barrel. So you can get this one through, this is the Johnny Knife. And look at that. Got some uh, scales there to look like a trout. This is, you know how I like to support kind of startup knife makers and uh, this stuff. This is a great one right here. Love this. Bozeman, Montana is home base. And uh, yeah, check them out, both Birch Barrel and Cutaway Knives. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can catch Chris every weekend on Fox News Sunday, and you can order his book, Countdown Bin Laden, wherever books are sold, as well as Countdown 1945 and his earlier book, Character. Highly encourage you to read all of these books. You can pre-order my next novel, In the Blood, wherever you get your books. You can go to officialjackcar.com, find the links there. You can also go to Jack Carr USA for the merch. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciated. Take care. Stay safe. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or how? Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.